0: Steady hands, you know, keep your kind of eye strategically on the prize if it were. And the prize doesn't necessarily have to be knowing everything about the marketing landscape or chasing bigger, better roles per se.
1: Welcome to the Marketing Innovators Podcast. This is the show for marketing innovators everywhere who want to push the boundaries of marketing and learn about cutting edge strategies and channels that are working today. Join us each week to hear from industry-leading marketers as they share best practices and what is working for them. This episode is brought to you by 2Web. Growing your business online is overwhelming. At 2Web, we make it simple. Our agency has helped over 700 businesses and organizations grow through digital marketing. Learn more and reach out to us at 2 Welcome to the Marketing Innovators podcast. Today, we have an exciting guest, Brady Hambleton, who is uh, the Vice President of Marketing, Engagement, and Analytics for Canada's Children's Hospitals Foundations, a national network of 13 children's hospital foundations. In this startup, not-for-profit, Brady has built and launched a new organizational brand, digital ecosystem, campaign framework, and data warehousing and analytics infrastructure to future-proof a data-driven organization. Previously, Brady was a national director, direct marketing at Heart and Stroke, where he launched a number of new campaigns and giving products, along with being a member of the core brand relaunch team. Brady started his healthcare philanthropy journey as manager, annual, and plan giving at Toronto General and Western Hospital Foundation, and in the earlier years of his career, he held various roles at the University of Toronto, from donor services officer to senior development officer in plan giving and capital campaign at Victoria University in the University of Toronto. Brady is a huge lifelong learner and constant advocate for professional development and learning. He is currently pursuing ongoing graduate education in data science and analytics and serves as chair not-for-profit council with the Canadian Marketing Association. Outside of his professional life, he is an avid traveler, curler, wine lover, aviation enthusiast, and has a love-hate relationship with golf. Brady, <laughs> welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. Nice to be here.
1: Yes. So that's uh, quite a bit of a mouthful. I mean, you have gone through quite a bit of a journey over the past decade or so. Why don't you start with giving me uh, a little bit more about your personal background? I know, we've, you know we kind of covered the bio here, but maybe you can talk about some of the pieces here as you went through your professional journey.
0: Certainly. Being in the not-for-profit sector, and I think my generation that sort of grew up and went to university or college or higher education in the late 90s, early 2000s, we didn't ever go to school saying, I'm going to be a fundraiser. I'm going to be a marketer. I'm going to work in the not-for-profit sector at large. Certainly things have changed now. There's a lot of really good postgraduate education that are available. And a lot of um, students, some of whom I mentor through the University of Toronto, actually are actively seeking out careers in social impact or not-for-profit or fundraising. I arrived in Toronto in 2000 and um, pursued undergraduate studies at the University of Toronto. My path was, like many science students, to be a, a doctor or something in the medical research field, public health. And that was the course I pursued, by and large, through undergrad. I had a bit of a revelation at the end of my um, undergrad where I wasn't necessarily satisfied entirely with the prospect of going to work in a medical research lab or going through the um, curriculum of becoming a physician or a surgeon, which is really what I was most interested in. Nor did I necessarily understand, um, as well as I do today, what opportunities might exist in public health or public policy. So I made the choice to take a bit of a pause and took um, six months to decide what is it that I want to do. I'd always been involved um, actively with the alumni associations and the alumni office um, at the University of Toronto. And so naturally, um, I thought perhaps a a career in fundraising, public relations, or something in that domain might be appealing. I wasn't entirely sure. So I applied for a, a number of roles and landed my first one with the University of Toronto. And the rest is history. I mean, uh, looking back now, 14 or 15 years ago, when I landed that first job until now, there's never been a day, and we all have tough days, but there really hasn't been a day where I haven't been entirely satisfied. I take great satisfaction and pride in the work that I do. The path to landing where I am today, where by and large, I am responsible for marketing, communication, branding strategies, as well as a lot of um, digital and data ecosystem and and infrastructure was a little bit circuitous, being that I started out as a fundraiser and naturally migrated towards uh, data-driven marketing, direct marketing. I was very fortunate to work with an incredible team at Heart and Stroke Foundation, where they were in the midst of rebranding and um, going through a metamorphosis of sorts in terms of their identity, but also across all facets of their organization. And at the time, I started in the development department and somehow made my way over to the marketing department and got to work with a number of incredible leaders there who gave me a lot of opportunities. And I was fortunate to know the now CEO of Canada's Children's Hospital Foundation, Mark Herlihy, who's my current boss and somebody who I've known for many years and had um, great respect for in the industry who made me aware of an opportunity that had opened up at CCHF. It was certainly an unorthodox role in that it oversaw multiple departments and a small startup organization attached to a very large, well-established enterprise, Children's Miracle Network Hospitals, and the network of 13 Children's Hospital Foundations. So I thought, why not? You know, what's life without uh, you know, some added challenges? And I have to say that the last three years have been arguably the most challenging but the most fulfilling of my entire career.
1: That's interesting. What a journey. I mean, most marketers often dream about, you know, having a diverse experience and uh, I think, you know, you've actually had all these different experiences which has led to basically this position. So this position in, in itself, I mean, obviously you are dealing with marketing and it's, it's a very um powerful and meaningful organization. So tell me if you can maybe give some more insight about how do you actually communicate effectively the message that uh, you know CCHF has as well as what kind of marketing efforts work really well
0: it's a really good question and i would say that all of the traditional principles of of marketing particularly charitable marketing in many ways go out the window in our model while we are most certainly trying to establish ourselves continually as the cause of choice children's health on a national stage across a network of 27 highly recognized blue chip brands and corporations and 13 incredible brands unto themselves in the children's hospital foundations in our network our purpose is really to work in partnership with our corporate partners as well as reinforce the brands of our children's hospital foundations so the way that we approach marketing and communications depends largely on the partner. So for example, many of our partners have significant periods of time throughout the year, six, seven, eight weeks, where they're actively in campaigns across hundreds or sometimes thousands of retail locations. And rather than position ourselves as the vehicle to receive all the funds and position ourselves and in a competitive way, we put it that way, as a charitable brand, we actually work behind the scenes to position the partner and bring each of the foundation's brands and stories to life and together in a communication strategy that makes customers and members of the community aware of the fact that, you know, for this period of time, you can support your local children's hospitals by giving $2, $5, $10, whatever it might be. And increasingly, we've also been working with the partners to align the communication strategies and the marketing strategies with whatever their ESG, CSR, or cause marketing pillars might look like. Our organizations are all on a very different journey, or rather our our corporate partners. Many have a very well-defined ESG or SDG, SDG, UN sustainability goals, or CSR strategies in place, and others are somewhere along their journey in creating and establishing of those. So we like to lock arms and say, we're your partner in this. We want you to understand as well as we do what your strategy is and in turn, why you choose to partner for children's health, because ours is a movement. So our vision is if you change the health of children, you'll change the health of Canada. We believe that wholeheartedly, and we want all of our partners to understand what that means to them and to be able to articulate that in their own way. And so, One partner might choose to lean heavily into digital channels as well as in-store marketing activation and stay away from some of the traditional tactical channels, whereas other partners might want to lean more towards the traditional. So prints and in-store broadcast, they might throw in a little bit of light digital into the mix. So we always meet our partners where they are. And in effect, we're really, truly a strategic partner. I believe that partners for the most part, believe that. And we've really been intent on evolving the way that we approach and activate our partnerships, meeting the partner where they are, but making sure across the board that everyone has an understanding of what they're doing, which is changing the health of children and changing the
1: health of Canada. Interesting, that's, uh, that's amazing. So when targeting some of these accounts and obviously when dealing with these partners, You have to be, I'm assuming, quite a bit selective in terms of your approach, in terms of, you know, the strategy that you're actually using to communicate with them and so forth. So what are the biggest challenges that you're actually coming across when it comes to convincing, you know, a partner to help you in a certain direction?
0: Well, I would say on an annual basis, one of the most effective things that we do is is to sit down with the partner and plan out a year the way that a partner would typically plan out their own business cycle or the way that we would sit down and plan out our own organizational strategy for you know, a 12 month period. And as well, we are big believers in bringing the foundations that are part of our network into that as well. We always start by kind of looking at the successes of the previous year or and many of our partners have been with us for 20 plus years. so looking at it through the cumulative lens. So we have many partners that are well above $100 million cumulatively in kind of contributions over 20 plus years. And so what we like to do and what we've leaning into more and more deliberately is making sure they understand how they've helped everything that we've accomplished thanks to their support. We then often take the lens of looking at what opportunities exist, what would we love to accomplish if there were no constraints, whether they're financial, human capital, strategic talent, et cetera, a bit of a blue sky thinking or what we call blue ocean. And from there, we'd like to then develop a bit of a wish list to say, let's see what we can accomplish this here, whether it's doing things differently, whether it's doing things more deliberately, or whether it's really significantly expanding the scope of something that we've tested, we've learned and we know is a highly effective approach or a tactic. So Rather than focus you know, solely on the challenges, which always exist, there's always challenges in terms of the availability of funds to fund a project. Human resource is often a challenge. As much as we would love to operate like a large multi-million dollar corporation, we often have to be pragmatic in what we're able to accomplish. And yet our partners always surprise us, as do our foundations. And collectively, when we come to the table, Generally, there's no challenge that we can not overcome. COVID was certainly a good example this last 14 months of the pandemic. Going into it, um, being that by and large, our network of partners are retail or partners that rely heavily on customers and transactional interactions. That's not exclusively all of our partners, but the vast majority of our partners are in that domain. We were concerned, as were you kind know, of our, our membership of, of foundations and I'm sure any charity and any not for profit whose model relies on mass contributions from the public, whether it's community events, peer to peer, or in our case kind of retail partnerships, they were concerned as well. And yet they really blew us away, particularly our larger national partners that have been with us for many years and some of our new partners as well, really overdelivered and exceeded our expectations, far exceeded our expectations. But it was because we were in lockstep the entire year. We were always in communication. If ever there was a year to over-communicate and make sure everyone was always on the same page, and that we were constantly identifying whether it was looking at channels, whether it was looking at particular regions um, within the country, and we continue to do that to keep an eye on what the state of provincial lockdowns are and what the state of our our ability to effectively fundraise is, this has been the year where we've been in constant communication with one another. And I think it's helped us realize, you know, some new ways of working in the future, that quote unquote, new normal that's often overused, but really does apply to our business and also eliminated things that were ineffective that we can do away with, with little to no consequence.
1: Wow. You know, I mean, COVID has impacted so many different organizations and businesses at many, many different levels. So, you know, being with CCHF, like what kind of impact has the pandemic had on the organization?
0: Well, I think that there's a number of ways that it's affected the organization. There's the external factors, just in terms of the fatigue that I think it's created for people in terms of we've been for now, 14, going on 15 months, largely behind computer screens, conducting all of our business on laptops with little to no certainty on kind of when the end will be. I think the impact that it's had on the morale within our organization has sort of ebbed and flowed, but we've always maintained a position of compassion and kindness and empathy to our staff. And that goes as well for how we approach and conduct our business with our partners as well as our member foundations. I think the financial effects on to raise money, as I said, were much lesser than we had anticipated. And in some cases, some of our partners actually exceeded and broke their records for previous years. So that's really helped us see and understand where some more scalable opportunities might exist in the future. And then I think just in general, one of the things that we've really committed ourselves to talking about is the effects that it's had on the children, like children and adolescents and youth that rely on the hospitals within our network for services, critical care, et cetera, as well as the mental health toll that it's had. And we know that once this pandemic is over, there's certainly going to be some profound long-lasting effects, you know, the children and youth within the country. That we're going to have to continue to make sure that we talk about and make sure that our partners are all committed to helping us address um, going forward so by and large i think we've fared well but we're certainly being pragmatic about um, some of those long-term implications and consequences
1: now because you're on the chair of canadian marketing association i'm going to pick your brain on some ideas about marketing and uh, you know a lot of businesses have really suffered in the past uh, year year and a half as well as uh, many organizations they've uh, you know some have managed to pivot greatly and they've taken and they've leveraged the opportunities that exist others have unfortunately not survived so what would be you know what do you see as working from a marketing perspective in today's era
0: oh goodness that's a loaded question but a great one it is i think agility is one of the key determinants of how businesses have been able to survive and thrive, and and as it relates to to marketing, the ability to uh, continually, in particularly in this pandemic year, adapt to the communication strategies and the needs of whether it's a, if it's a for profit business, the core customers, particularly those that have you know storefronts or rely on kind of customer traffic. How quickly have they been able to? obviously scale and adapt their e-commerce models, but also their communication strategies. Because I think people in the beginning, I think it was a bit of a fight or flight. Everyone relished the idea of, yes, I'm going to stay home and then I'm going to pick up my laptop and I'm, I'm going to go home and I'm going to work from home. And there was even a bit of a novelty effect but that wore off really quickly. And then I think um, what I've seen, whether it's you know with respect to partners within our network or just, you know, in general across the marketing landscape, is that people have be increasingly become fatigued because we're just constantly immersed in this digital world where, you know, we're doing what you and I are doing, talking back and forth and conducting business across computers. So people's tolerance and I think ability to receive messages has been significantly diminished. And so brands have had to really think about how do they be original? How do they stand out? And I think most importantly, how do they be authentic? And so in addition to kind of that agility and that ability to scale, which has been, you know, the reason why many brands and organizations, large and small, have made it or break it during the pandemic, I think those that have embraced authenticity and actually speak truthfully about what we're all going through and are human about it without it being seeming manufactured are the ones that can cut above the clutter and have either built significant customer followings or have retained and grown the existing base that they have. And that's, I'm speaking sort of in general terms, but that's just as both a marketing professional, but also a consumer. That's been my Mm. experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that, uh, you know, marketing agility is is really necessary, especially in today's age. You know, often businesses, they classify marketing in two areas. It's either an expense or an investment. Right. You know, how would you classify it?
0: Well, certainly, uh, I mean, I think it's a bit of both, obviously. There's, from an expense perspective, there's, there's always the need for, to maintain and invest in core infrastructure and your underlying technology and really think about how you safeguard and secure your position, but also the, you know, deliver on the experiences that your customers or your supporters need. Where the investment, I think, now more than ever is pertinent is, are you future guarding yourself? Are you safeguarded and and ready for whatever the next curveball the universe throws at us, whether it's another pandemic, whether it's, uh, you know, what happens if networks get taken down completely? How ready are we to adapt to what are, by and large, natural disasters that are outside of our control within reason, obviously? whether it's pandemics, whether it's cyber attacks, whether it's any manner of things that, you know, even the most sophisticated models don't necessarily see coming or might not be able to predict the extent. This is a global, you know, issue that we're facing right now. So it's not just, you know, us in the province of Ontario or the country of Canada, it's everyone. So, you know, I think that by and large, and hopefully increasingly, particularly companies that may shy away from Making the necessary investments in marketing will, will see that marketing isn't strictly advertising and, and shouting louder than your competitors. It's much more than that. It, it cuts across the entire business. It affects the customer experience, the customer journey, your ability to kind of deliver your product, your ability to establish loyalty and retention. All the principles that apply in the not for profit world and the charitable world are very translatable and even in the for profit sector as well. And brands that understand the integrated nature of that ecosystem and the importance of making those investments to future-proof are the ones that I think are going to win out.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you talked a little bit about how brands need to think differently now to break through the noise and, you know, there's just so many different ways on how you can actually conduct marketing efforts. And do you see any specific channels or any tactics that work better than others?
0: I think it depends largely on the brand, the brand category, the type of brand. I'll give you an example. I think, you know, social media, for instance, by and large, has become so saturated. And the idea of paid Facebook campaigns or, you know, targeted Instagram campaigns to specific segments and lookalike categories, it's almost obviously I think it's effective for the right kind of brand or the right kind of organization. Where we've realized where our, our potential as CCHF has sort of a cause that um, we believe is appealing to national corporations and decision makers and where we want to get their attention is in LinkedIn, for example. Not necessarily regarded as the, you know, the sexiest channel for marketers to play in, but arguably an unsung hero, particularly if you're kind of in that B2B category, but or for us, presenting an opportunity to join a movement to change the health of children, change the health of, of Canada. It would be a disservice if we put all of our eggs in the Instagram basket or the Facebook basket, where by and large, we're definitely targeting and talking to, to consumers and you know, the public and mass segments at large. But where are the decision makers? Where are the kind of the uh, influencers that are working within corporations or areas where, you know, somebody at, at a technology company that has made a decision to establish a CSR strategy and in that they want to tackle health, the health and well-being of the population and particular children. We wouldn't necessarily have gotten to them through the kind of traditional social media channels that um, every brand uses. So we have to think a little bit unconventionally. On the flip side, a brand like Google that just came out with a, an incredible spot, I don't know if you've seen it or not, that talks about getting back to normal. And it was just so simple in its execution, but so profound. And it probably didn't take a multi-million dollar budget to create because Google used its own kind of search engine, image of its own search engine, and just sort of overroute They erased the words associated with the pandemic and just positioned it as if, you know, in order for us to get back to normal life, this is what we have to do. So it was a bit of a PSA. It certainly was an approach that I think certainly endeared me more to Google as a brand and as a partner for marketers. But I think it also softens the consumer perception of Google as well as the, you know, this big search engine. And because it's much more than that. And those of us that are marketers know that. So, I appreciate that. And then on the flip side, there are things that I've seen cleverly executed during the pandemic that I never kind of would have made the connection. So a lot of um, in-store marketing tactics that have appeared, you know, fun ways to, to play around with the floor decals and in some cases kind of making light and creating a better shopper experience, despite the fact that, you know, aisles are taped off and everyone's in masks and everything. I've had some really great experiences where I wouldn't have necessarily thought about doing that. And that certainly has again endeared me to those brands and um you know, strengthened my loyalty to them. So long after the pandemic, I'll always remember the experience that I had. So I really think it depends largely on the category or the type of organization or, or company.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's just so many different ways on how things are evolving, even, you know, at this time. And obviously we see now Zoom meetings being the norm, you know, that's a a simple example, you know, it was something that was considered uh, secondary, you know, to meeting in person. But now, because it was mandated in a way, you know, it's, it's the primary method of communicating. And I think what's happened is a lot of companies, once they've kind of gone into this mode of remote work and remote meetings, many have actually enjoyed the savings that have come with that, as well as efficiency gains, you know, we've seen significant efficiency gains that have tied to performances and so forth it's really interesting and in how again some companies have a different take on it you know they they still feel that okay having in person is the way to go and you know i'm on the i guess i would say i would say that there's benefits in both areas but you know i think people are people are waiting to go back to work it's uh, it's been a long break and it's interesting how from a marketing perspective the messaging would shift when things hopefully do get back to normal as to you know what transitions will take place uh, you know would zoom meetings b- still be the norm you know a simple example would remote work still be the norm those are some questions that are likely to be asked but i'm also a big believer that you know education is the best form of marketing and uh, we've seen a surge of of webinars online online courses you know, transitioning, you know, content to educational content online. A lot of different, uh, you know, organizations which had offline workshops are now moving everything online. So in the learning management side of things, there's been a significant transition. And people are, expect, are are accepting that now, you know, and really, you know, paying attention to that. I know that universities are facing a lot of challenges and so forth, but it is something that it's, it's accepting to a lot of people. And I think that, you know, once everything's kind of sells down, people would question, okay, do we really need to go back to university and and take the long trip, or do we continue learning online? So it's gonna be interesting to see that. And with all this content being in the online format, there's lots of possibilities and potential to do marketing around that. And companies and organizations are leveraging that opportunity where they now have these digital assets that they can really promote their message on. So coming back to CCHF, and where you see things are heading in the future, you know, as you overcome some of these challenges and, and barriers, and where do you see the vision over the next couple of years for CCHF? Do you see things, you know, evolving in, in a drastic way? Do you see things being the same as it is? What's the vision like?
0: Are we speaking in terms of our working model?
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of your working model, as well as your messaging, you know, when it comes to, you know, working with partners, do you see that transition differently?
0: I don't necessarily think our core values and our core positioning our vision and our mission statement will change. If anything I think obviously the pandemic has underscored and also accelerated our the need and when we put some context behind that so sort of we've just embarked upon a our own three-year kind of strategic plan and then that there are a number of, kind of underlying pillars not the least of which is talking about the kind of equity of care for kind of, children across the country. And we're very careful with the word equity. We don't mean to suggest that the way in which healthcare is delivered is inequitable, but more so the fact that this pandemic in particular has highlighted to us that there is a need for, across the country by and large, for kind of, virtual care models to evolve and telemedicine to evolve. We saw some great successes in those areas, pre-pandemic and remote communities, particularly in like Northern Manitoba and Saskatchewan, Alberta, where you know, there's a higher population in Indigenous communities. But outside of that, you know, our commitments and our really one thing that we're going to drive deliberately and strategically over the next few years is to continue to reinforce that message that the standard of care that the 13 hospitals within our network that are attached to the foundations that are members of CCHF needs to be the same standard of care that's delivered consistently across the country. This is a very large nation geographically and in size, and proximity to any one of the children's hospitals, which by and large are located in the major urban centers, isn't always equitable. You know, what happens to a family that's 14 hours away and has a child in need of um, specialized care that might exceed what their family doctor is able to provide, or, you know, what happens to the family that has to come in to one of the specialized centers for treatment, but can't necessarily afford to completely upend and uproot their life. They have to go home eventually, but the the care and that standard of care and that specialized care needs to continue. So that's one thing that we're looking at and, and we're really committed to driving going forward. And I don't, uh, if anything, I I really see us being able to accelerate and continue to drive change thanks By and large, from the learnings that we've um, achieved or received in this pandemic. On the flip side, I think that there's, um, to your earlier point, a lot of things in terms of the way that we connect as a network. So, traditionally, we would get together once a year. We most often would convene the network in Toronto. We would bring all of our partners together, and all of the foundations would kind of descend, and we would have two, two and a half days of really intensive collaboration and learning, and we would bring in some great speakers to inspire us on the state of the nation in our industry, the not-for-profit industry, or we would bring in retail leaders to talk about some of the changing and evolving models. We know that we can do that by and large in, in a sort of a virtual setting now going forward. That doesn't necessarily mean that we'll completely eliminate that, and in fact, I think once we as a society as Canadians get to a point where we're comfortable being around one another and we're, you know, all vaccinated or, you know, the country has essentially said it's safe to open up again. Some people have predicted it'll be like the roaring twenties. There's going to be this surge in demand for travel and consumer products. And I, I just think people want to give each other hugs and, you know, see each other. I certainly want to see my family and friends. So I think that I don't necessarily think, and I'm actually on a, with an organization called the Association of Fundraising Professionals, which is a sort of a global chapter-based organization. I'm with the Toronto chapter and on the board of directors there, I, I chair the sponsorship. And so we we think a lot about the events that used to draw hundreds and sometimes thousands of people into Toronto again for like thought leadership and networking and best practices, those large national conferences. I don't necessarily think they're a thing of the past. I think it's going to be sort of a slow return, but I think if anything, there may be this kind of overcorrection of people wanting to be together. And then people will sort of settle back in and say, okay, I've got my fix. I've seen people now, I've been around people enough. I'd like to go back to a bit of a hybrid model. I think the same goes for the way that we will work. Our leader has always been, Mark has always been extremely progressive in his thinking, and. We've always had somewhat of a hybrid model and out of necessity, we're often in different parts of the country, pre-pandemic, to spend time face-to-face with member foundations in our network. And we have, I know, strong ties to Children's Miracle Network Hospitals, which is a US-based organization that also has a lot of large events throughout the year. So I think we're going to definitely return to that because we want to, and uh, it's a core part of who we are as human beings to have that contact. But I think it will be in earnest, and I think that there will always be going forward hybrid models where most companies might do two days of in-person collaboration and three days of remotes. I think many businesses, ours included, have significantly downsized their footprint. So we moved from an office that was five thousand square feet to one that was just over five hundred square feet, knowing that in going forward we're in a collaborative space. We're in a WeWork uh, building, so on an as needed basis. We can bring our team of 20 people in and sit in a, a boardroom on premises. We can drop our stuff off in the small office. And then you know we can work out of the office on a bit of a rotating schedule. And we've learned over the last 14 months that will in no way put our core business at risk. We've been fortunate. And a lot of what myself and my counterpart, our VP of finance and operation built from the beginning was all cloud based. So we have no systems that are tied in any way to a physical server. And we deliberately made that decision, not knowing that there would be a global pandemic, but definitely knowing that our workforce is a bit of a hybrid one with a lot of travel Mm -hmm. in across Canada. So the ability to pick up and move safely and securely have everything locked down and um, your cybersecurity set in place, but to be able to freely work from wherever you choose to work was important from us from the very beginning.
1: Excellent. So you were well-prepared. Well-prepared. Unintentionally,
0: (laughs) but uh, we're certainly glad that we did.
1: That's good. That's good. good. So with regards to, let's say, if you could go back five or 10 years, what advice would you give to your younger self? That's
0: such a great question. I think I would tell myself to to pace myself i certainly my nature i think is i want to learn as much as i possibly can at all times and want to expose myself to as much as i possibly can professionally and we know that the 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 world of marketing in particular is what marketing is today is what it won't be tomorrow <laughs> there's just constantly new innovations and there's a lot of Visualizations that show the plethora of uh, like Martech stacks or software as a service providers for any manner of things. And if you look at the before and after, you know, 2013 versus 2021, just this explosion of service providers. And so I've always been, you know, the type of person who I feel like I'm missing out on something if I'm not kind of constantly on top of things. And I would just tell myself, steady hands, you know, keep your kind of eye strategically on the prize, if it were. And the prize doesn't necessarily have to be knowing everything about the marketing landscape or chasing bigger, better roles per se. And I've certainly learned to appreciate this more so in the last 14 months. It's just about making sure that you have your core values aligned with what you're doing on a daily basis, be it the organization you work at, the people you choose to work with on a daily basis. And the work that you actually do and finding that sort of alignment that satisfaction admittedly and i don't think anyone can say their entire careers they're always aligned and i certainly you know have had moments in my career where something isn't right i'm not getting as much satisfaction as either i used to or i would like to so you know i would just tell myself to pace myself because you know career like life is a journey i'm really consider myself very fortunate to have had the career that I have, particularly the last 10 years where I've been able to learn so much about so many different aspects of marketing, be it technology, branding, analytics, channel-based marketing, retail marketing. So I really think that I've been able to add to my toolkit. And looking back on kind of Brady 10 years ago, super ambitious, super driven, I don't necessarily regret you know having that drive but i certainly would say just enjoy it just make sure that you take the time to enjoy it reflect at the end of every day ask yourself like what did you set out to accomplish somebody recently sent me a one of those inspirational images you know somebody's standing at the top of a mountain looking off into the horizon with a saying but the quote resonated with me it's like if you can't sort of master your life just master the day just take it day by day. And I've really tried to subscribe to that, particularly during the pandemic, where nobody knows, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or the week after. We've just had to learn to adapt and roll with it and count ourselves fortunate. I'm fortunate to have an incredible network around me of leaders, of mentors, of colleagues, of partners, and people who Really subscribe and believe in a cause and in my volunteer work, people who believe in the the industry, whether it's the marketing industry or the fundraising industry. So, yeah, I would just tell myself, pace yourself. Good things are coming. You'll be very happy where you are in 10 years.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. You know, one thing that COVID has done is that it has really sort of realigned ourselves from a perspective. You know, we always think, okay, we're in this race. You know, we want to get this, we want to achieve this. And you know, we are basically, there's nothing that's going to stop us, right? But then COVID hits and we realize, okay, how vulnerable we are. And, uh, you know, being surrounded by so much death around the world. And it has a profound impact as to, you know, how you basically pace in your life. I mean, you mentioned you're know, <laughs> suffering from FOMO all the time. So fear of missing out. And I mean, you must be all anxious all the time but it's the way that a lot of i think young professionals young marketing professionals really stride forward i mean they think we okay, they need to know everything very very quickly and they need to basically demonstrate their their expertise in all these different areas and and they're trying to always look at the next you know shiny object that is out there and, and trying to learn it and master it and so forth and that's good it, there's a bit of a drive there but i think some of us take it too far you know we don't realize you know the impact that it has on ourselves from mentally and as well as you know, how it's impacting those people that are around us. So Brady, lots of really good information based on your experience and the challenges you have overcome. If there was one big takeaway that you could give to our listeners, what would that be?
0: I really think the best is yet to come in our sector. So marketers and whether you're a traditional marketer, communicator, public relations, whatever domain you're in, I think this is the best time, if ever, to be of a, a professional marketer and to be a part of this industry. And I say that because I think, by and large, if I'm looking at the next, you know, ten years and sort of try and cut through the noise of oh, personalization and all, you know, AI and all of this, it's all great stuff. At the core, we get to be, and we have to be, the storytellers. We have to. Really understand whether it's an industry or an organization, a company, a cause, whatever it might be, what differentiates us and what sort of connects us as human beings to one another. And if we forget sort of all the lessons that the pandemic has taught us in, in terms of the power of connection, the power of authenticity, the power of agility, and to know how to tell a, a good story and when, and then how to use you know, your data, your technology, your channels to really distribute and bring that to life. Then I think we just need to take a step back and, and ask ourselves, you know, what is it that um, as marketing professionals, we why do we show up every day? Like, what's the purpose of our job? It can really, in some cases, marketing can kind of be dismissed and overlooked, but I think increasingly, arguably, the importance and the sort of the, the value that marketing as a whole adds to, to most organizations has significantly increased and will continue to. It's particularly over the next five to 10 years. So stick with it because the best is yet to come. And at the end of the day, just always keep in mind your core values and the fact that we are humans connecting with humans. So you could be B2B, you could use B2C, whatever acronym you want to use. At the end of the day, it's a human to human connection. So don't forget that.
1: The best is yet to come. (laughs) The
0: best is yet to come. (laughs) Excellent.
1: So Brady, where can people find you online and what is the best way to reach you? You can find me on LinkedIn.
0: I'm Brady Hamilton, (laughs) Uh, CM. I have the letter CM after my name. I'm not a, it's it's often mistaken for Order of Canada. I am certainly not at that level by any means. CM is the Chartered Marketer designation that the Canadian Marketing Association introduced a few years ago. And it's, you know, very rigorous curriculum-based certification. So you can find me on LinkedIn. That's generally where I just I love to connect with fellow marketers, fellow thought leaders. I'm also on the board of the Association of Fundraising Professionals Greater Toronto Chapter, so um, if ever you're attending one of the AFP events, particular in the GTA, chances are I'll be there or be involved. and of course, the Canadian Marketing Association, which has been near and dear to my heart for well over five years now and actively involved uh, a number of events and initiatives. So you can always find me there as well. But LinkedIn is the best way to make a connection with me. And I'm always happy to have a virtual coffee or make a connection. I can't promise I always have the time, but I'll certainly make time or or find the time to connect with fellow marketers.
1: Excellent. So we'll actually include a link to your LinkedIn profile here at the the podcast as well. Brady, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been really insightful to have you on the show and and learn so much, you know, about CCHF as well as your background and uh, the future of marketing. In a way, <laughs> so thank you for being on the show.
0: Thanks, the pleasure is all mine.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Innovators Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast. And remember to share this episode with your network. As we mentioned, this episode is brought to you by TwoWeb. We help your business thrive online. Learn more by visiting our website at 2web.ca.